0: Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege and honor it is to be the church gathered. By definition, God, the church is the called out ones. And that means, God, we were called out from sin and death and darkness in the same way that Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave. He called us out. And not only are we the called out ones now, God, we are the sent ones. And it's just amazing to me that you not only saved us, but you sent us. As we're gonna see today in Ephesians 4, God, you've gifted us and you're including us in the work that you're doing in the world. And that just blows me away. And God, I pray that particularly in this text, we would see that, we'd see what you're doing and how you are inviting us in to be a part of it. But God, I know that we can't see that and understand it without a work of grace by your spirit. So would you now open our eyes and our ears to see, to hear, to know these truths. We thank you for them. God, and I know I can't preach them without the help of your spirits. Would you help me to preach it in a way that honors you and that is helpful to us? We thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, we are in Ephesians chapter four. We got back into Ephesians last week after we closed out Ephesians three in 2023 And now we're in Ephesians 4 in 2024. I didn't even plan it that way. I just thought of that as I said that. Like, that's pretty cool, you know? You're like, what about five and six and one and two? Don't worry about all that. All right, I'm just talking about three and four. But we're in Ephesians chapter four. And last week, we talked about the first six verses, those that you saw on the screen there, and how in Christ, God saved us. That was everything that God did in chapters one through three, how he saved us by grace, And now Paul transitions into the commands section of the book or what we call the imperatives where he now tells us to live lives worthy of this calling that God has called us. And so last week we talked about how we all have the same call and that same call is to be like Jesus, to live like Jesus. That is the main point of our life now, to walk worthy, which means to walk like Jesus. And I said, you can't walk like Jesus if you don't walk with Jesus. And so the whole message of that was there's this oneness to our faith. And we actually closed out the the sermon last week really looking at those ones in verses 4 through 6. In fact, I want to begin there this week cuz it's going to set up verse 7. So let's look at verse 4, 5, and 6 again. I have it here on the screen. And this is what Paul said. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And I told you he mentions one seven times. And so he talks about this oneness, how we're supposed to have this oneness in our worship and in our walk. We're all supposed to worship one God, and worshiping one God results in this one hope, this one faith, this one baptism. And so there's this oneness, or you could say sameness, or unity in our faith. We're all called to live like Jesus. But that's a setup, if you will, to where Paul's going to go next in verse seven. And so in order to understand verse seven, you have to see verse four, five, and six, because Paul's not just talking about the oneness that we should have. He's talking now about how this one God in this one faith has given each one of us gifts. So now let's go to verse seven. It says, but, and that's a transitional statement, right? That's a conjunction. Conjunction, junction. What y'all? function. Thank you for paying attention. All right. And that's an adversative conjunction. And what that means is he is now contrasting what he just said. And when you contrast something, you're showing the difference. So look at this. He says, but grace was given to each. What's that next word there? One. One. Let's try that again. Come on, everybody. Let's try to each what? One. One. Same word, but it's now used as a play on words, if you will. This is the eighth time it's used, but it's used in a different way. He says, because grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So here's what Paul's trying to say. There's a oneness in the sense, and this is what I try to say all the time, in the sense that we should all have the same spiritual fruit, like We should all have our goal, which is why we do abide every year. We abide in Jesus because apart from him, we can do nothing, but we abide in him. He grows fruit in us, and the fruit that he grows in us is the same, the fruit of the spirit. I say this all the time, and the reason why I say it all the time is because you need to be reminded all the time, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, goodness, I think as well. And so that is the oneness. That's the same But when it comes to gifts, we don't all have a oneness in the gift because he doesn't give the same gift, but he uses a play on words to say, but he does give each one a gift. So let me give you this point and I'll give you some, even some supporting texts. So if you're taking notes, here's what you might want to write this down. We all get the same grace, but we all don't get the same gift. We all get the same grace. That's chapters one through three. By grace, you have been saved through faith in Christ, right? But we don't all get the same gift. In fact, what he says here in verse seven, he says, but grace was given to each one. So you got grace. Like if you're in Christ, you've received grace, But then he says this, according to. Now that is a preposition of reference. Literally, this is what I love here. I love how he says this, and partly because it just confirms the fact that God loves math, all right? God loves numbers, which means God loves me because I love math and I love numbers. But he says, according to the measure. That word there, measure, is literally the Greek word, metron, where we get our English word, meter, So apparently, the metric system is biblical. I would just like to say that to us imperialist Americans, where we measure things by feet. You know, metrics is all based on the system of tens, which makes total sense. I don't know why we as Americans had to be so stubborn back in like the 80s. We're like, no, we're going to stay on this whole thing of like, well, that's about a foot. Yards, inches, you know. And again, you may like that whole system, whatever. I'm just saying this idea of measuring out like in a metric system is literally what Paul's saying here. Here's the idea. To each one of us, God measured out according to grace, right? Or by grace, sorry, according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So here's the deal. To you, he may have measured out this much gift, like a centimeter or 10 centimeters. He may have measured out a meter. He may have measured out three meters. You're like, well, that's kind of like a yard, isn't it? One meter is three feet, whatever. So he measures these things out. In fact, Jesus talks like this when he talks about the parable of the talents, To some was given this, and to some was given this, and to some was given this. And here's the thing that I love. He didn't measure it out according to you, like your abilities, or let me say it like this, or your awesomeness. So therefore, you can't say, well, if I got this much, I'm awesome, and if I got this much, I'm not awesome. Why? Because he didn't measure it out according to your awesomeness, he measured it out according to his gifting, the grace that he gave you. Let me give you a supporting text. You can turn there if you want, but you don't have to, I have it here on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 through 11. Same guy, the Apostle Paul, this is what he says. Now there are varieties of gifts. That word there are varieties is literally the idea of there's a distribution of gifts but watch this, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Now listen to this, to each, and you could say to each one, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. See, there's a oneness in why it was given to you, but there's variety in what was given to you. Let's keep reading. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits. That's discernment. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Now, here it is, verse 11. All these are empowered by what? One and the same Spirit who apportions to each what? One individually as he wills. As he wills. He decides how to measure that out to each one. And this is what bumfuzzles me. And I don't know if that's a word, but you know what I mean, all right? This is what confuses me in churches all the time. When churches will use gifts, watch this, as a measurement of maturity. Well, that's a wrong measurement, why? because that's a different measurement for you as it is for me. And I didn't have anything to do with the measuring out of the gifts. Like you may look at people and you might think that they're more gifted than you and you get upset about that. Well, you need to talk to Jesus about it. But here's where I think we go wrong and here's what's very, very interesting to me. The Greek word for grace is the word charis, c h. Uh, A-R-I-S, charis, which we've actually turned it into a name. Well, the Greek word for gift is charisma. Now, we just brought that over into English, right? And when we say charisma, what do we think about? We think about somebody who maybe is attractive. They have woo. They can win others over. We think of somebody who has charisma as, you know, they can stand up in front of people. We think of somebody who has charisma as like a super kind of gifted, talented, kind of leader, kind of take charge type of person. But here's where we go wrong. We think that some have charisma and some don't. And we tend to think about it from a personality type, but we've completely misunderstood the word. See, every single one of you have charisma. Every single one of you. And this is where I know you're like, not my spouse. They did not get hit with the charisma stick, right? It's because you misunderstand charisma. Charisma is not a personality trait. It's a gifting. And all of you have been gifted. Gifted. That might be the best news to you ever. You can leave church and you look. I got charisma. I didn't know that. I just thought I was an accountant to sit back behind the computer and I don't like people. I'm not saying accountants don't like people, but but I again, we tend to think of like extroverted and introverted, or math skills or people skills, or book smart or street smart. Right? You're using the wrong categories. You have charisma. But watch this, your charisma is not a sign of your integrity or your maturity. We know this, right? Because how many of you know charismatic people, and I'm not talking about theologically speaking, I'm just talking about people with charisma that are horrible people. Like they got charisma. They can sell ice to an Eskimo, right? I mean, they got charisma, the way we use it, but they're horrible people. That's just as crazy thinking that that person who has charisma is mature as it is thinking in the church that if I have this gift, I'm mature. No, that's a completely different category. And here's what we need to understand. There's a oneness In the God who measures them out, but there's a diversity in us who receive them. I don't have the same gift you have. You don't have the same gift I have. And that is why we need each other. Because no person is a charismatic unto themselves. No person is a charisma unto themselves. No person has all the charisma that God has measured out for humanity. So you are not a self-made woman or a self-made man because it's God who made you and he made you. Yes, you might have some more charisma or some more gifts than others. It doesn't make you better than them because you didn't measure it for yourself. That's like a tall person bragging that they can dunk a basketball. Well, well hold up, bro. Did you make yourself tall? Do you have anything to do with you being seven foot? I mean, you go like this. And then you flex on people? Bro, you're seven foot. Now, if you were, uh, what's the, the, the short guy? Muggsy Bows? What was his name? Yeah, Spud Webb, that was him. If you're like four foot 11 and you can dunk, bro, Okay. You can flex on somebody because you could jump. But you see what I'm saying? But here's what's amazing to me. How often do we take this charisma and we somehow take credit for it in our giftings or in our personalities? I'm not like you. You're not like me. We're not supposed to be like each other because we didn't get the same gifts. We do get the same grace from the same God, but he measures them out according to 1 Corinthians as he wills. And this is why I say all the time, I hope you think I have the gift in here of knowledge or preaching or prophecy, but if I'm exercising my gift like I'm doing right now, I can't take the credit for that. I can't take the glory for that. God gave that to me. Now, I can do it in such a way that glorifies the giver. It doesn't mean I don't exercise my gift. I just exercise it in a way knowing it's a result of grace to me. Now, that's not the whole point of the gifts. In fact, we're gonna get to the point because he's gonna tell you the purpose of why he gave you the gift. But before he does that, (laughs) this is why I love the apostle Paul he is going to take like this, it's gonna feel like this weird turn in verses eight and nine Inarguably, arguably one of the most confusing texts in the entire Bible. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 4, eight and nine. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Now, he just quoted Psalm 68, 18. That's what he quoted. And I don't have it on the screen, but you can go back and reference it later. Psalm 68:18. he quotes that, and that's when it says, he ascended on high and led a host of captives. But he says he gave gifts to men. But Psalm eighteen, Psalm sixty-eight, eighteen says he led a host of captives and he received gifts among men. And people will look at this verse, and this is why it's so confusing. Like, hold on, hold up. On. Paul quotes the verse, but he misquotes it. Psalm sixty-eight, eighteen says he received gifts. Ephesians four, eight says. He gave gifts. See, you can't trust the Bible. There's a contradiction there. It's not without error, which we say it is. It's without error. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It has to be if it's God's word. But what's going on here is something much deeper. And you get it in how Paul even uses the verse to begin with. And this is what's really weird, yet awesome. Notice how Paul sets it up. He doesn't say, Psalm 68, 18 says this. Therefore, Ephesians 4, I say this. That's normally how you quote the Old Testament. That's not what he says, though. Here's what he says. He reverses it. He says the truth of Ephesians 4, 7, that he gives gifts. Grace is given to each one according to the measure of his gifts. Therefore, it says, here's what's crazy. Here's what Paul just said. Psalm 68, 18, even though it was written chronologically before Ephesians 4, When David wrote it, he was writing it to prove the point of Ephesians 4, 7. Now, let me ask you a question. When David wrote Psalm 68, 18, was Ephesians 4, 7 wrote yet or written yet? No. But here's what Paul says. He says, this happened. Therefore, David wrote this. You're like, hold up, you. You're messing with the time-space continuum here. You're saying that in first century AD, Jesus did this. Therefore, back in BC, David wrote this. This is what's amazing about the word of God. This is why it's infallible. This is why it's inerrant. It's not a normal book. When David wrote what he wrote, even though he didn't fully understand what he was writing, the spirit within him that was inspiring him to write it knew what Jesus was going to do. Therefore, he led David to write it. See, everything that God wrote was not just foreshadowing what would happen, wasn't just Typology of what would happen wasn't just prophecy of what would happen. it was written as though it had already happened. Jesus was going to do this, therefore, David wrote this. See, that in of itself is weird. No other book, no other person writes like that or talks like that. I mean, just imagine, here we are in 2024. And I write something and I write it in such a way and I say, this is happening, this God is doing because of that that's going to happen. You're like, bro, how the heck you know that's going to happen? You got a time machine? We don't need a time machine with God because God doesn't exist in time. Time's a creation of his. Time is something he is above. And i said this many times. Therefore, watch this. The future is not something God just knows about. It's somewhere he is. Let that just like to your mind. So when David wrote what he wrote in Psalm 68, 18, he wasn't just writing it, foreshadowing it. He was writing it To explain, to give you context for when Paul wrote Ephesians 4, 7, Paul would come back and say, that's why this was written. Here's what's amazing to me. God may have you write some stuff or do some stuff that you have no idea why you're writing it or doing it. You won't know until the future. But if he tells you to write it, if he tells you to do it, you can bank on it. It's going to happen. But that's not the only thing that's trippy about this verse. Paul also changes it. See, David wrote, I already referenced it, he ascended. Well, if he's talking about God, how can God ascend? God is already in the highest, right? So David writes in Psalm 68, 18, he ascended. How? Don't you think when David was inspired to write that he ascended? How the heck does he ascend? I don't know. That's what he told me right. Don't make no sense to me. So Paul, here's what's crazy. The Old Testament is actually explaining the New. Normally, it's the other way around. So Paul is picking up on this, and he's saying, well, of course he ascended. Why? Because he first descended. He couldn't ascend until he first descended. And who was it that descended? The same one who ascended, Jesus. He descended from heaven to earth. Now here's where it gets real like trippy to people. And I've gotten this question many times and I understand why I got it and I'll show you why. But in verse nine, when it says, he descended into the lower regions, the ESV is the translation we use here primarily. It says into the lower regions, comma, the earth. But some older translations will say to the lower regions of the earth. Now, in the Greek, the word of is not there. The reason why we supply it in English, even though it's not there in the Greek, is because the word the is in the genitive case. And when a word in Greek is in the genitive case, it's showing possession. And so how we would supply that in English, we would say the cross of Christ. Because the cross is possessed of by Christ. It's Christ's cross. It's an ownership thing. So we would say of. But what happened in especially the early church is a theology got built that said Jesus just didn't descend from heaven to earth after he died, his soul actually descended into hell. That comes from the Apostles' Creed. In fact, I'm going to read it to you. I don't have it here on the screen. I'll just read it to you, though. This is the Apostles' Creed, which was written, it was formalized in about 6th, 7th century, which is about six, 700 years after Jesus. It was not written by the apostles, so it's not the inspired word of God, but it was written to kind of try to summarize everything the apostles had taught. And here's what it says. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son. Our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. All good so far. But then it says this phrase. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. That right there summarizes pretty much the gospel, except for that one phrase in the middle. He descended into hell. Personally, at this church, we do not believe that Jesus descended into hell. You may have been taught that. You may believe that. I'm not saying you're wrong or unbiblical and you're unorthodox and now you gotta leave the church on it. No. But what I'm saying to you is it's a misreading of this text. Because it makes it sound like if I supply the word of there, it would sound like into the lower regions of the earth. But it's a misunderstanding from a possession because Paul is not differentiating between earth and the lower parts of earth. He's differentiating between heaven and earth. He ascended from heaven to earth. It's of the earth. It's, it's of the earthly things from which Christ descended into. Now, here's why that's important. There's no other biblical reference, by the way. People try to use 1 Peter three nineteen. That's a really weird verse too. I'll get it whenever one day, Lord willing, we preach through 1 Peter. But this is the only place which is, you gotta be very careful taking one verse and building a whole theology about something if other places don't originate it. Primarily, the one thing that contradicts this is Jesus when he was on the cross and he says to the thief next to him, Today, you'll be with me in where? That's not hell. So here's what we believe Jesus' body. And spirit on the cross were one, just like yours and mine is now. When he died, his body went to the ground, his spirit went to heaven. That's what will happen to you if you're in Christ. Then on the third day, his spirit came back into his body and they both were resurrected, which is a sign of what will happen to us in the final resurrection. So there's no theological reason for Jesus to descend into hell. Further point, because the cross itself was hell. Because what is hell? We can't think of hell without automatically thinking of a place. And I say this all the time to you as well. We can't think of heaven without thinking of it as a place. But my contention to you always is it's not so much about a Place you're trying to get to, but a person you're trying to get to. See, heaven is the presence of God. Pastor Chris talked about this in our Biden nights for Moses. The promised land was no longer a place, Israel, it was presence, God. So don't think of hell so much as a place. I'm not saying it's not a place, but what is hell? It's more about judgment. It's more about the wrath of God coming. So, if Jesus bore the wrath on the cross, why does he need to go to hell? A lot of people say, well, that's where he went and got the keys from the devil. The devil ain't in hell. I know that always trips us out. He's here. Walking around like a roaring lion, Peter says. No. He didn't descend into hell. And I don't think contextually he's talking about that because again, it's not necessary. But here's the main thing. See, in Psalm 68, 18, he said, he ascended and he took captives. Now, when it says he took captives, he's not talking about Old Testament saints that had died and were in Sheol. That's like the holding place. Catholics would say purgatory. And then when Jesus came, he set them free, took them to heaven. No, Old Testament, if you died and you had faith, you went to heaven. How do we know that? Because Jesus, even referencing Lazarus, Lazarus is in heaven. Enoch went to heaven, right? So the captives that he's talking about here are not saints that are held captive until Jesus resurrected. It's actually demonic. It's actually dark powers. Paul says there's plenty of, in fact, he already said in Ephesians 1, I'll show you in a second, when Christ ascended, he ascended above every power, ruler, and principality. But here's where Paul changes because in Psalm 68, 18, it says he had captives and he received gifts. See, it's military language. When one army beats another army, they now take them captive, which means they now are authority over them, which is what Jesus did. When he descended onto the cross, he disarmed the rulers and principalities, he beat them in his death and resurrection. And when you beat them, what do you get? You get all their possessions. You get all their stuff. It's like a weird pirate term, booty. I don't know why that we call it that. That's the only time I'm gonna say it in the message, right? Because of those of you who weren't listening, you are now. You get the spoils. But here's what's trippy. In Psalm 68, 18, it says, he led captives and he received gifts. Well, When you beat somebody and you take their spoils, we don't ever call those gifts. We call those bounty. We call those spoils. Why in the world did David say they were gifts? Here's the best part of this whole story. Because when Jesus beat the enemy, he took all their stuff and he gives it to his people as gifts. See, he beat the enemy took them captive and all the power and all the rule and all the pleasure and all the things that they had over people they no longer have anymore because Jesus took them. And Paul says now in Ephesians 4, 7, 8, and 9, he received them then, but he's given them now. So when Paul changes it, he's not misquoting it, he's fulfilling it. He's showing you how when Jesus ascended, he ascended because he first descended into the grave and when he descended, he beat them and when he rose again, he put them to open shame. He took all their stuff and now he's given them to his kids. So all your gifts that you receive from Christ, Christ won them because they were his to begin with and the devil stole them because the devil can't create anything. But Jesus received him. He's like, thank you very much for that. And guess what he's doing now? He's giving them. But here's what's crazy. David didn't know when he wrote that, that that's what it was gonna be. And Paul's telling you, this was written. Not Ephesians was written because of this. This was written because of this. So at the beginning the end was already fixed. At the beginning this is why the Bible says before the foundation of the world Christ had been slain. Before the foundation of the world Christ in a supernatural metaphysical sense had already beat the devil and had already stolen back from him everything that the devil has stolen and he gave it. Now it's just playing out in real time. So this is what's amazing. I hope you never see your gifts the same again. Because Jesus died and rose again and received them and now he's given them to you. Your gifts are a result of his victory. Why? Look at verse 10, Ephesians 4.10. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. The word there, that, is the purpose statement clause. He did it for this purpose. He descended, descended, beat the devil through his death, burial, and resurrection, and then he ascended, took all those gifts, And now he's given them to you, watch this, that he might fill all things. And this is where, you thought the story was good? As I tell you all the time, the gospel's gooder. Why did he give you gifts? He gave you gifts because through your exercise of them, he's actually filling all things. You don't believe me? Let's go back to Ephesians 1. We already preached on this, but this is what's crazy. The more you keep reading, the more you understand. Look at Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. And what the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That's us, right? According to the working of his great might, grace, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, now watch this, it's gonna sound very similar. And seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Now check this. Far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, and above every name that is named. That's what it means when he says captives. Everybody is now captive to Jesus, the devil and the demons themselves. At the name of Jesus, they must flee because they are no longer in authority. At the name of Jesus, he's above every name, every power, every ruler. When he ascended, he took captives and he received gifts from them. He's like, thank you very much. Now watch this. This is, what, this, is what, this is what trips me out. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. Now, here's the connection the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Here is Paul's entire argument. He gave you gifts that He descended and ascended to get. And now He's given them to you because through you, He wants to fill all things. This is why Jesus said in John 16, it's better for you that I go, because if I go, the Spirit's going to come, and you'll move from me on the outside of you to the the Spirit on the inside of you, and we call them spiritual gifts. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 12. It's the same Spirit that's giving me that gift, and why is the Spirit giving me that gift? Because Jesus, the head of the church, watch this, watch this, watch this has more people out there that have been taken captives by the former leaders who now themselves are captives. And now through the body, see, he's the head. This is why we say around here, I'm not the senior pastor, I'm junior. Jesus is the senior pastor of Revolution Church. This is his church, it ain't my church. He's the head. But who's his body? You and me. But watch this, in a body... Is they're all the same part? Yes or no? No. You got fingers. You got muscles. You got veins. You got nerves. I found out about those. You got bones. You got organs. You got eyeballs. You got ears. You got hair. You got toes. You got toenails. And that's the metaphor he uses to describe us. And he gave you that gift. Let me say it to you like this. He made you that part. Might be a mouthpiece. Might be an eyeball. You might be a toenail. And you're like, I don't really know why I'm here. You want to know why you're here? Because Christ is filling all things through you. So not only should you never see your gift the same, You should never question if you should exercise your gifts. Because, watch this when you, as a part of the body, are exercising your gift that the head gave you through the spirit, you are now filling all things. Think about it the spirit has been poured into you. And when you use your gifts, when you serve, what are you doing? you're pouring yourself out, right? Paul says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. Let me ask you a question. How is one thing filled up? It's filled up when another thing is poured out. Could it be that the reason why the earth isn't full of God's glory is because the church isn't pouring themselves out? The church isn't pouring out what was put in because the church's like, I'm just a toenail. I ain't got no charisma. I'm not gifted. If you're in Christ, you're gifted. And even if you're a toenail, you play a part, a very important part. And if you don't play your part, guess what? The spirit doesn't get poured out and the world doesn't get filled up. So don't ever, ever minimize the grace that God gave you according to the measure of his gift that he gave you to do your part in the church to pour out the spirit to fill the earth with his glory. You have a big part to play. And here's what's amazing. You're not going to be credited or rewarded by how many gifts you had. You're going to be credited or rewarded by how you used them. So you could spend the rest of your life wishing you were more gifted. Or you could say, Thank you, Jesus, for giving me the gift that you gave me. I'm going to pour it out for your glory. Because didn't the Bible say the last shall be first anyway? See, it's not going to be preachers that are first in line at heaven. It's going to be the toenails. The people in churches all over the world who just did their part to the glory of God, who poured themselves out Because they knew and they understood that they didn't want to waste their life for which Jesus gave his. He descended. He descended so that he could ascend, so that he could receive gifts, so that he could give you gifts. Last point, don't miss this. Christ fills all things through his body, the church as each one of us uses the gifts we have been given. That's how he does it. And this is what amazes me. God didn't just give me grace to save me. He gave me grace so that I could serve as well. God wants you on his team so that through the spirit in you Christ the head of the body is filling all things God has drafted you in to his mission please never think again that your life is insignificant please never make the assumption that you would be better off and everybody else will be better off if you were dead because until you're dead you're not done God has a mission that he wants to do not only in you, but through you. Because he's got more people out there that are empty. See, this is what's crazy. The the idea of something being filled up is assuming that it's empty. If your neighbor is empty, it's your responsibility to fill. And see, this word empty can also mean incomplete. Incomplete. If our world is incomplete, it's our job by the gifting of Christ to complete them, to bring the same grace that came to us to go through us to them. And that's where joy is found. And we'll get into this more next time as we look at verses 11 through 16 where we actually kind of look at some of the gifts. But I want you to understand this. Christ just didn't give you grace to save you. Christ gave you grace to gift you. And if you're saved and you're not serving, you're wasting your life. But if you're not saved at all, you have no life. Because you only have life because he descended. And he beat the devil. He beat death. He did take the keys. And now he'll give them to you you believe receive that grace let's pray father thank you this gospel it's ridiculous it's unreal but it's real it's this grace is amazing that not only did you come and make us alive, but you gifted us. You gave us gifts. You gave us charisma. So that through us, Christ might fill all things. God, this is, this is amazing. And I pray we'd see it as that. God, I know there are people here or watching that have never received the grace of salvation. They're still dead in their trespasses and sins. And I pray right now, God, you'd save them. No one looking around or talking as we close. If the spirit has opened your eyes today to see the truth of who Jesus is, that's a work of grace. And now you can respond in faith and be saved. So if you wanna trust Jesus, you can pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud but it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me, that you sent Jesus. He descended to earth and he died on a cross in my place for my sins. But he rose again, defeating death in the grave. And I wanna trust in him and therefore be made alive. So would you save me? Forgive me. Gift me now by this same spirit to serve you. Again, nobody looking around or talking, if you just pray to trust Jesus and you're in one of our physical locations, Jasper Canton, would you just simply lift your hand up? We got men and women that are here. i are gonna put a gift in your hand and when they do, you can put it down. It's just a Bible, some next steps. We want you to know. More about this, God. But then, those of us, again, which is typically the the vast majority of us, if you are saved, but you're not serving, and, and I'm not just talking about serving at church. Yes, that's included, but I'm talking about serving not just at church, but as the church. You're not actively loving your neighbor. You're not seeking the good of others by serving them. Various activities, Paul said, or you don't know your giftings. Again, we'll we'll get into those as we keep going. But please don't ever think that you have nothing to offer. Please don't ever think you have no charisma, because you do, because you have charis, you have grace. And don't think that you're not as good if you don't have another gift. So your prayer is simply, God, show me my gift and give me opportunities to use it. And then as you use that gift, Christ is filling all and all through you. What a privilege. Father, I pray that we would not only fully understand these truths, and just, I mean, Simple verses, God, but amazing that you descended, you ascended, and when you ascended, you received gifts, and you have now given us gifts, and you want us to not just receive that gift, but you want us to use that gift to serve. And God, I pray that we would do that, not only in our church, but in our city, and in our county, and in our world, that we would be known as the church that exercises our gifts And yes, that's all of them. And yes, that could include speaking in tongues, God, but that's not the gift. We all have gifts and we can all use them for the good of others. So I pray we would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you, church.